Our first lesson comes from 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning at the first verse. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he said to him, There was a certain town with two men. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, and the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children, and it ate of his morsel and drank of his cup and lay in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare it for the guests who would come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. And he shall repay fourfold the lamb that he's taken because he did this and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is the good news in this difficult Nathan and David story? What is the good news in this difficult Nathan and David story? Well, I'll tell you, the good news is that David is able to face the very worst of himself and not be destroyed by it. In this story, David is able to face the very worst of himself and he's not destroyed. And let me tell you, chapter 11, which precedes chapter 12, we see the very worst of David. Not only does David shirk his responsibilities as a king to lead his men into battle and stays behind, as our mothers all told us, idle hands, but then he commits adultery with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And then he conspires to cover it up. And then when he can't cover it up the way he wants to, he conspires to kill Uriah and does murder him in order to cover his sins. And in doing so, a number of other men are also killed in the process. I mean, how could he do this? This is David. I mean, this is the guy that gets the most airtime in Scripture next to Jesus. The amount of David's narrative that gets shared, we see a man of character, we see a man of conviction, a man of faith, a man who had a heart that was after God's own heart, who could write the Psalms, who had discipline. And here in chapter 11, it seems he throws it all away. And we see the very worst of David. Perhaps this becomes the greatest biblical wake-up call story ever written. Because if for a minute you're thinking to yourself that this is all about David and not about yourself, then we need to hear 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Take heed if you think you stand, lest you 
fall. This is a wake-up story for everyone. I can say with assurance that David had greater moral character, greater accomplishments, greater skills than any person in this room sitting here. I mean, you all are beautiful, but come on, this is David. And he fell. In this series, we start today looking at kings at their worst moments and the confrontation from prophets. Each week, we're going to see a king at his worst place. We're seeing David with Nathan the prophet coming to him. Next week, it's Elijah and Ahab. And then it's Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. And then finally, John the Baptist and Herod. And in each of these moments, we're going to see a king at his worst and God sending his prophets into that situation. But here's what's amazing about today's story is this is not simply another story in the long list of fallen leaders. The Bible's full of them. Our world is full of them. We could list them now. Another story of a fallen leader. No, that's not what this story is about in chapter 12. This Nathan and David story, this difficult story, is in fact about the rescuing of a fallen man. David is rescued and redeemed through this story. David will never be the same man after this story. He is truly a changed king after this difficult Nathan and David moment. Because David, we will see, truly repents. Truly repents. Repentance is one of those words that's difficult to describe often. We think it means sorry, just saying sorry. But it doesn't just mean saying sorry. It doesn't just mean feeling really sorry in your heart. I know I keep saying sorry. (laughs) Sorry. But repentance is about changing your direction. Repentance is about turning in a different pathway, acknowledging your brokenness and turning in a continuous pattern in a different way. And David does that as a result of this. He repents. It's like the man who's given the parrot as a gift. And all the parrot does all day long is angrily swear at him. The parrot knows all the bad words and just swears at the man all day long, angrily. And the man tries everything to stop the parrot from doing this. He tries to use gentle, kind words with the parrot. Nothing works. He tries to play soft music to calm the parrot down. Still angry swearing. He tries to ignore the parrot. He yells at the parrot. Nothing works. Finally, in desperation, he takes the parrot and puts it in the refrigerator. In, sorry, in the freezer. Closes the door. Parrot in the freezer. And after some muffled swearing, finally there's silence and the man slowly opens the door and the parrot calmly steps out of the freezer, walks onto the man's arm and says, I am terribly sorry for my swearing. I realize now that I should not act this way. And I am determined from this point forward to never swear at you again. And before the man can ask him for the reason for this great change, the parrot says, and may I ask, what did the turkey do? (laughs) Repentance. Changed direction. See, the good news of this 
difficult Nathan and David's story is that David is able to face the very worst of himself and not be destroyed by it. Because, as we see in the story, the Lord gives David a prophet. To this wicked king, the Lord gives a prophet. He sends Nathan. But not only does the Lord give David a prophet in order to save him, the Lord gives him a penitent heart. Through the ministry of this prophet, David's penitential heart emerges. But not only does the Lord give him a prophet and give him a penitential heart, but the Lord gives him a pardon, a full and complete pardon, which will come at incredible cost. But first, in order to rescue David, the Lord gives David, this very fallen king, this very fallen man, he gives him a prophet. Part of the prophet's job in Israel was to call out the corruption and wickedness of kings. Someone needed to stand and be God's voice to speak to corrupt kings. And David, slowly but surely, has become corrupted by his power. I think we see this most clearly in chapter 11. If we were studying this in a Bible study, we could walk through each of the sections in chapter 11 when the word send is used. And see, the word send, that verb, is, is, is probably the best example of a king's executive power, right? That, that power to send people. Like, you go, I'm going to send you, and then I'll send for someone else to come to me. That incredible power that kings have to send people and send things and send actions into motion. And what we see through chapter 11 is the word send is all the way through because David is clearly abusing his sending power. He's abusing his kingly power. It begins right at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 11, when in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and the army. In other words, David shirked his responsibilities. Instead of leading his own armies out, he said, hey, I've been leading the armies for years now. I'm the king. I'm secure. I've got the executive power to say, I'm not going to go lead the army. I'm going to send you into the battlefield. And from there, David keeps sending. Verse 3, he sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof and sends inquirers to say, tell me who she is. They find out. Verse 4, he sends for Bathsheba and they have their adulterous affair. Verse 6, he sends word for Uriah to be sent back so he can cover up the pregnancy that, is, that, is, that has happened as a result. Uriah shows up. He sends Uriah to his wife's house so that he can sleep with his wife and cover up this, this, this pregnancy. Uriah, being a good, righteous man, will not go. Because he says, how can I go and, and sleep with my wife when there are men on the battlefield right now? And it's kind of like an indictment against David. Like, how can you sleep in your house when your men are on the battlefield? But Uriah won't go, so David then sends Uriah back out to the field. He sends a letter to Joab that Joab will send Uriah into the hottest part of the battle and then sends that the troops should pull back so that Uriah will die. And then verse 27, at the very end of chapter 11, we hear that David sent for Bathsheba and she moved into the royal palace with him. The whole chapter is about him abusing his kingly power. And so the true king, the king of heaven and earth, 
who made David king, he decides to exert some executive authority. And verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1 begins, and the Lord sent Nathan. The true king sends his prophets to David. And as the prophet comes, so comes this word of judgment. It's interesting that as Nathan shows up, he begins in verses 2, 3, and 4 of telling this story. You know, there's a rich man, a poor man, lots of sheep, no sheep, one just one sheep. Rich man steals the poor man's one sheep. And you got to ask, Nathan, why did you take this sort of indirect route? Why didn't you just come in and first words out of your mouth is, you've sinned with Bathsheba. Why does he take the circuitous route? And I would argue that Nathan doesn't get straight to the point because Nathan would make a great NHL hockey player. The season begins this week. Every sermon will have an illustration. But see, in hockey... Good players understand that you, you know, you got to be amazing to be able to just skate right in and score. The better thing is to learn how to pass and set up plays well. And so there's something called a one-timer where you can pass so beautifully and perfectly across the ice that the next player you're passing to doesn't even have to receive the puck, just knocks it right into the goal. It's called a one-timer. And that's exactly what Nathan's doing here. The story in verses two, three, and four is the pass. It's the beautiful setup. Because what he's doing in telling this story is he's awakening David's conscience. David begins to feel righteous indignation about this horrible story he's heard, right? And it works. The, the setup is there. The goalie is way out of position because in, in verse 5, we're told that David, his anger kindled and he said, his anger was kindled at the man and said, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this shall surely die. It's an overreaction. I mean, you're going to kill a guy for stealing a sheep? But the point is, Nathan has beautifully set this up. David is angry to the core. He's feeling deeply about this story. And then the shot that completes the one-timer, verse 7, you are the man. See, Nathan has brilliantly led David to the place where at this point he has no other possibility but to receive this horrifying word about himself. David has already self-condemned himself with these words. What we need to understand is that David's outrage at this story is a sign of the guilt that is inside David. This story pulls out the guilt that is within David. And that's exactly what the world we live in right now. Many folks are referring to the age we live in as the age of outrage. We live in this world now where it's, it's, it's so socially appropriate and required that we call out people for their great and grievous sins. And, and, and social media has made it even worse because then we can all gang up worldwide on these victimizers and oppressors. And don't get me wrong, it's right that people are called out for their transgressions. But let's be clear, what psychologists and philosophers are beginning to tell us is that this moral outrage that we just so love to throw out there on social media is in fact a deflection from our own sense of guilt. That we get so outraged at the sins of others and we plaster it all over because we are in fact transferring our own sense 
of guilt away from ourselves, on to a heinous victimizer, a heinous oppressor who becomes the scapegoat. David's outrage is a sign that he knows his guilt within him. And so Nathan strikes, but he strikes to heal. You are the man. It's the one time I think ever you don't want to be told you're the man. We need Nathans in our lives. Psalm, uh, sorry, Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, The wounds of a friend are faithful. The wounds of a friend are faithful. It's what made me an Anglican. As I was contemplating during seminary of where the Lord was calling me to serve, to lead, and to preach, I had seen too many leaders fall from grace and then have churches and denominations and polities and committees sort of gather around and sort of try to initially protect the the organization and and sort of hide it. And I said, no, 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 no. If I'm going to do this, if I'm going to have the audacity to stand in the pulpit and be a moral leader in a community, then I had better have a bishop who can fire me in a phone call if I stray heretically or morally. And that's what our bishops do. That's why when I was inducted as rector here, we had both a bishop and an archbishop present. So it's kind of like a double barrel prophetic ministry in my life. To be able to say, listen, you need Nathans. We all need Nathans who can come into our lives and speak the word of truth. God sends us Nathans. Will we hear them? As G.K. Chesterton once wrote, I don't need a church to tell me I'm wrong where I already know I'm wrong. I need a church to tell me I'm wrong when I think I'm right. That's the work of a Nathan. That's the work of the prophets that God sends us. And so God sends David a prophet. But not only does he send him a prophet, he gives David a penitent heart through this prophetic ministry. Verse 13, David in response, I have sinned. Note that he doesn't make any excuses. Doesn't put any caveats on it. He just admits it. I've sinned. This is the main difference, by the way, between David and Saul, right? David and Saul, both imperfect kings who had their moments of massive failure. But the difference is with Saul, when the prophet Samuel was sent to Saul, Saul's reaction was to keep giving excuses. All the way through chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, when Samuel confronts Saul for his sins, Saul again and again is making excuses. It's excuse after excuse after excuse. Finally, verse 16, Samuel says, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said. And then he says, the Lord has taken the kingship away from you. And even after this, what is Saul's response? Verse 24, he says, I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He's still blaming the people. He's still saying it's someone else's problem. And we do this all the time when we come to places of what I'd call partial penitence, right? We're like halfway there. We're ready to confess, 
But we've got conditions and caveats. This happens in marriage all the time. How many times has it happened where Monica and I will be arguing, it'll be a bad moment, and a little bit of gospel grace will descend upon the argument. A little bit, little, little touch of grace. And I'll say something like this. I'll say, you know, I understand that I'm not being the spouse I need to be. And right there, that, that, that's great. But then I keep talking. <laughs> and I say, but, you know, for all honest, you know, you're not being the spouse you're supposed to be either. It's not penitence. That's not confession. That's caveats. That's you do a little and I'll do a little. Right? It's Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden again. Right? Adam says, the woman gave me the fruit and the woman says it was a serpent and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. The point is <laughs> that we are constantly in this place of half repentance, half penitence, and claiming it to be full penitence, but it's not. David's penitence is full. His penitential heart says, I've sinned. And not only that, he acknowledges actually who he's ultimately sinned against. He says in verse 13, I've sinned against the Lord. Now you want to say for a second, hold on. I, I think you've sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and Joab for conscripting him into this conspiracy and for the other men that were killed in the process. Like, shouldn't David say, I've sinned against them? No, David says, I've sinned against the Lord. Why? And this is no way David believing he doesn't have to make restitution. He does need to make restitution to those he's armed. But here's what David understands. In this moment, he understands that underneath his sin is in fact the deep core root of his sin, which is the sin against God. Underneath each and every sin we commit against one another is an ultimate first primal sin that is the rejection of God. See, this adultery story in chapter 11 and 12 is ultimately not really an adultery story, a sexual adultery story that begins in chapter 11. The adultery began long before chapter 11 in David's own heart towards God. David strayed from the Lord his adulterous action began by straying from the Lord. And then everything else followed. I mean, hear the words of the Lord through Nathan. They sound like the wounds of a wounded spouse. God says to David, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you much more. In other words, what God is saying to David is, when did it happen that I stopped being enough for you? When did it happen that me and my love and my provision for you stopped being enough and you had to take matters into your own hands? Spiritual adultery is where it began. And so David confesses, I've sinned against the Lord. This penitential heart is ultimately a gift from God. It's something that will emerge out of us as God, through his prophetic word, pulls it from us. I love the words of Psalm uh, Isaiah 55, verse 10, that says, as the rain falls from heaven, and provides seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so goes forth my word. 
It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish the purpose for which I send it. And what's the purpose? To convict us of our sin and to lead us into righteousness. That penitential heart that comes out of David is a gift. The father is pulling this out of him. As Luther once said, he said, every heart that hears this word must lose faith in itself, else it will not be able to come to Christ. God works, do nothing but destroy and make alive. Condemn and minister salvation. As 1 Samuel 2, 6 says, the Lord kills and makes alive. Not only does God, in rescuing this fallen king, send him a prophet, but he gives him a penitential heart, a heart that can truly acknowledge his sin, confess it, and repent. But not only that, the Lord gives David a pardon. And it's a full and complete pardon. But it costs so much. You see, verse 13, Nathan's response to David they're amazing words until we understand the ramifications of them. Verse 13, Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And we say, amen, forgiveness, I shall not die. But then we've got to understand what the word put away means. It's very technical language. It means transfer. It means move. The Lord has moved your sin away from you somewhere else. Because in the whole concept of biblical theology, we are told again and again that a just and righteous God cannot just look on sin and say, poof, it evaporates. It doesn't matter. It didn't happen. That would not be a just God. That would not be a good God who looks in the face of evil and violence and corruption and says, oh, it didn't really matter. It did matter, and God will judge it if he's good. The judgment must fall on someone. So when it says he put away your sin, it means God has taken your sin and moved it to another. In this horrifying end to this story, which I cannot even begin to explain in the context of a sermon fully, except to assure you that it is gospel. Verse 14 tells us where David's sin went. Nevertheless, God says, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. David doesn't die. It's been put away from him. That's God's mercy to David. But it falls on another. But hear this. This child, this son of David, who bears this sinner's death, this child is a forerunner. This child is a prophetic picture of what is to come. This child contains the entirety of the gospel. Because is it not true that when we come to Matthew chapter 1 and we read the genealogy of Jesus, that all of a sudden in Matthew chapter 1 verse 6, we bump into the reality that part of Jesus' lineage is this son of David and the wife of Uriah. That through the seed of David and Bathsheba, a son will come who will bear the sins 
of the world. This child in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 12 is a forerunner, just like John the Baptist is a forerunner of Jesus. So this child is a forerunner that says, look and see the cost of your sin. Look and see the cost of your salvation. It doesn't just go away. It doesn't just pass away and evaporate. It is taken by someone. As a Muslim who was visiting our church in Ottawa once leaned over to me during communion and asked me what communion meant, and I told him in brief the gospel story about Jesus coming to bear our sins, taking everything wrong in us on himself, bearing the punishment. This Muslim seeker said to me, I don't believe you. And I said, why? He said, look at all the people in line going to communion. They're talking about where they're going to go for lunch after. Do we understand the cost of our salvation? David would never forget it. The child, the son of David, right before him died for his sins. And so the son of David dies for us. That's the cost of our pardon. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. What is the good news for us in this difficult Nathan and David story? The good news is that we can face the very worst of ourselves and not be destroyed. That's God's mercy. We can face in truth, the worst of ourselves and not be destroyed. Because friends, we rehearse this David and Nathan story every Sunday. This story happens every Sunday. We rehearse it. This difficult Nathan and David story is what we do every Sunday. It's why we describe what we do as word and sacrament because here's what happens. Every Sunday we gather and every Sunday that prophetic word gets spoken over us through the scriptures and it cuts to our heart and convicts us of how we have fallen. And every Sunday as that prophetic word cuts through our hearts, it begins pulling out of us a penitent heart and we know our sin and we confess our sin and then we're invited to the table where we can taste and see the full weight and cost of this pardon. And we walk away every Sunday having had a prophetic word over us having had a penitent heart emerge and having been fed at this feast of our pardon and we can go back into our lives with these words, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Alleluia. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.